0: We're going to look at the back of the hymnal together to what is uh, called the Westminster Larger Catechism. For those of you visiting, uh, this is part of our standards. Uh, We do not uh, put this above the Bible. Uh, We just simply put our standards uh, forward as what we think is the best representation of what the Bible teaches. So if you'll turn to page 958 in the back of your hymnal, 958, We're, we've been studying a couple questions at a time, the larger catechism. And we come to question 144. We're talking about the ninth commandment. Of course, the ninth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So let's look at first question 144. We'll talk about the duties that are required in the ninth commandment. And then, you know, take a deep <laughs> breath. Question 145 is a long one. Uh, What is forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? Okay, so let's uh, let's read together. Question 144. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The answer. The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, already receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. All right, take a break. (laughs) All right, here we go. Question 145. What are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause Outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, (coughs) calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning, or in doubtful equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, (coughs) denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports and stopping our ears against the just offense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves nor hindering others such things as procure an ill name. There's a lot there to meditate on. We won't do it all tonight. Let's uh, let's sing one more time here uh, before the word 119, Psalm 119, <coughs> letter U, please. Psalm 119, selection, letter U. We'll turn with me, please, into the Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 tonight, we're going to talk about union and communion with the Lord and with each other. Romans chapter 6, I'll start reading tonight at verse 1. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 11. We're talking about uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, of the communion of saints tonight. So we're going to talk first about our union with the Lord, with Christ, but then also the union that we have with each other because we are commonly united to the Lord Jesus Christ. So those will be our two main thoughts tonight. Let's pray again. We always want to rely on the Lord to give us the help we need, and then we'll read the text. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that the Spirit be with us as we read and preach, as we hear. May, Lord, you be with us, giving us grace and insight, and may that which is spoken be according to your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to begin verse 1, but really we kind of pick up at at verse 3. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore... We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, that is, even so you who are united to Christ, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then if uh, you want, you can turn to page 935 in the back of the hymnal. and chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, page 935, in the back of the hymnal, you should see in the upper right hand of the page a chapter entitled, Of the Communion of Saints. Of the Communion of Saints. There are three sections here. I'll read them. You don't have to read aloud with me. Number one, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit, and by faith, have fellowship with with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Number two, saints by profession are bound to maintain and holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who, in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus." And then finally, number three, this communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead. That doesn't mean that there's no divinization of yourself here. You're not being absorbed into the Godhead here. Uh, we, We are not in any wise partakers of the substance of the Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous, nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. So here, why do the uh, Westminster Divines talk about this chapter of communion with the Lord and with one another. Well, I think the reason they do so, and they put it here, is because last week, you'll remember, we talked about the church, the church of which Jesus Christ is the head, and we are members of his body. So as that analogy is brought forth in the teaching of the church, it is natural, I think, from a standpoint of logic to say, now let's talk about what the Bible says about the the nature of that communion. That is, we are a body and uh, in Jesus Christ as the church. And and so what what does that relationship look like? What is our union with Christ? What's the significance of you being united to Jesus Christ? And if you are united to Jesus Christ, and you're united to Jesus Christ, and I'm united to Jesus Christ, what does that mean for each of us as it respects each other? How is the communion worked out in, in the fellowship uh, of the church. And so that's what we're dealing with here. And there are a lot of different passages we could have looked at as our chief text. I, Margie and I went back and forth. I said, I think this is coming from Romans, but I'm not sure. Uh, because there are a number of places we could have jumped off from. But I thought of Romans 6 because um, it does have this strong emphasis on the union of the believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Romans chapter 6, which I'll admit is not the easiest chapter to understand. Martin Lloyd Jones, the great 20th century British preacher put it this way. He said they said, "What are you going to preach, Dr. Jo- Lloyd Jones? What are you going to preach on Romans?" He said, "As soon as I figure out chapter 6." <laughs> and uh, thankfully he came to some conclusions and you know, he, there's a great series. Uh, if you go to the mljtrust.org, uh, uh, they've got all his sermons, and they're wonderful. But anyway, um, this chapter is starting off asking the question. Remember, Paul's been talking about how great the gospel is, how great grace is, how great the forgiveness is, the atonement that we experience when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled unto God. Um, There's no condemnation for us. We're justified. We're declared right before God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the question was raised by critics of the church, but if you teach grace that's that free and a salvation that's that wide, aren't you just encouraging people to continue in sin? And some people were actually arguing for that. Wow, if grace is that great, and if I can be forgiven uh, by placing my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then maybe I should go on sinning. And what the Apostle Paul says is absolutely not. God forbid. You do not even understand the gospel if that's your mindset, if your first reaction to hearing the good news of Jesus Christ preached, is to say, wow, this is great. I can sin can, I can as much as I want and still make it into heaven. You have completely misunderstood the nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what the Apostle Paul points out here in Romans chapter 6 is that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are brought into an organic fellowship with Christ, a union with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you're living here in 2024 and Jesus Christ lived in the first century A.D. Jesus Christ lived almost 2,000 years ago and you're here today. And yet, despite that space, time, and geography, you nevertheless are brought into a vital union with the living Christ when you believe in Jesus Christ. And what that means is this... And and this is where it, it becomes complicated. When you believe in Jesus Christ and you are brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 here is making the argument that you have been brought into the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. You have been brought into life... or excuse me, yes, you have been brought into life, death, and resurrection when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I think he's talking about, you know, Lloyd-Jones thought it was spirit baptism. I don't think so. I think it's water baptism. But, But baptism... Is what That baptism is the entrance into the church. It is the entrance into the body of Christ. It is, it is that sign and seal by which you now declare your union with Jesus Christ. And what does it mean that when you have been brought into this union by way of baptism? Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When you have been brought into union, it's it's a naming ceremony. Baptism is a naming ceremony. You are named the name of Christ upon you. Remember, what baptism is is not, look what I have done. Baptism is, look what Jesus Christ has done. Baptism isn't isn't supposed to focus on the recipient so much as Christ. It's a picture of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, isn't it? It is saying that this individual, John Smith, Jane Doe, is now in Christ they who were born with this natural name are now being renamed Christian. And they are brought into the union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they are brought into union with Jesus Christ, they experience in this union of Jesus Christ all the blessings of the work of Christ on their behalf. And so what do they experience? Well, they receive, first of all, the righteous life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God. The book of Hebrews says what? That Jesus Christ was holy, blameless, and undefiled. Jesus alone as the second perfect man, the first being Adam who lost that perfection in the garden when he sinned, but Jesus being the second Adam or the last Adam, lived a perfect righteous life. And so that righteous life is now your life. Listen, why does God accept you and me? It's not because you're a great Christian. <laughs> it's, it's because Christ is a great savior. It's because Christ, it's his righteousness that's in, it's transferred to you. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is accepted by the Father on your account. Christ, his life, and his righteous deeds in words, thoughts, deeds are all imputed to you. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the life of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is yours. His obedience, the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ, from the time he was conceived to the time he said it is finished, was perfect in the sight of the Father. The Father says from heaven, on, at least on two occasions in the Bible, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He said it at the baptism. He said it at the transfiguration as well. He said that this is my son. This is my righteous son. And when you believe on him, when you believe on the son, you have all that is necessary to stand before the holy God. And so Paul is saying that baptism is a picture of our union with Jesus Christ. His life. But notice here, not just his life, but his death. Look at verse 4 again. Therefore, we have been buried with him. When was I buried with Christ? I was buried with him through the baptism into death, he says. When I came into the church by way of baptism, I was brought into the life of Christ and into the death of Jesus Christ. That Christ has died. And Paul says elsewhere, we have died with him. You're saying, Pastor, I've never died. He is speaking about the death that Christ died. You are united to that death. As Jesus is hanging on the cross and the Father is pouring out his wrath and judgment and Jesus is crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is because he is bearing the punishment of your sins. In Christ's death, we have died. Now, this is the point that, the Paul, that Paul's making. He's saying to this argument that, you know, once you become a Christian, just feel free to sin. He's saying, are you kidding? You don't understand what has happened to you. You have been brought into the union of Christ's life and his death. And if, if, if Christ has died, the death he died under the wrath and judgment and curse of God, you cannot continue in sin. You cannot continue in a way of sin. That's why anyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ and yet is an adulterer or continues in the way of, of uh, cheating or lying or stealing or murdering, Paul says, you know, have no fellowship with that man. And he's saying, I'm not telling you to have no fellowship with sinners, otherwise you'd have to go out of the world. But he is saying, there is no true Christian who who can for long continue in sin. Because if you have really been brought into a vital union with Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ. I have died, and it is not I who live anymore, but Christ who liveth in me. I am a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. And therefore, I cannot continue in sin. When I I sin, I cannot stay there because it is too weighty. It's too heavy. My, My conscience weighs down on me. I feel the discomfort in my soul. When, you know, the psalmist says, You know, when I did not confess my sins, what happened? He didn't prosper. It was only when he began to confess his sins that his soul experienced renewal and refreshment. We cannot continue in sin. We we have been brought into union with Christ through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteous life, his death, but then notice here, also his resurrection, He says in verse 4, We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Notice there the union. Christ has been raised. You have been raised in Christ. This is why Jesus said in the Gospels, You must be born again. You must be born again. This is is the condition of the kingdom. That one must be raised in newness of life. One One must have the resurrection power of Christ at work within you by the Spirit of God. That is the Holy Spirit, boys and girls, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says that. Now, actually, all three persons of the Trinity were involved in the resurrection. Sometimes the Bible says that the Father raised the Son. Jesus says, too, that the Son of Man can lay down His life and the Son of Man can take it up. So the Son is involved in His own resurrection. But it's commonly stated that the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and this same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, we are told, is at work within us. And so we live in this newness of power so that the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians could say that I I want to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings but also in the power of his resurrection. That as I have this union with Jesus Christ, I participate in the humiliation of Christ and his cross. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. But I also have this union and communion with Christ in the glory of the power of the resurrection at work within me. I, as a believer, we must always keep both of these in mind. Part of our union with Christ means we participate in the sufferings of Christ and in the power and glory of the resurrection of Christ. Isn't it strange that Paul says that, uh, you know, that the church is filling up the sufferings of Jesus? It's a strange verse, isn't it? And I don't think Paul is by that means that there's any deficiency. There's nothing insufficient in in the sufferings of Christ. There's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I think Paul is just simply saying He's saying this is a consequence of our union with Christ, that so long as this world is in rebellion against the Lord and we are in union with that Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, we will suffer. And we, uh, we have all in this room known the sufferings of Christ, haven't we? We have known what it is to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, to be despised, to be ridiculed, to be mocked and scorned and to lose friends for the sake of the gospel. We've, we've all experienced that and more. Some, some have experienced far more than that. Many of you heard what uh, Zacharias Asus experienced as a minister in Eritrea before he came to the United States. You know, he was locked in prison. Um, he spoke of the two women who lived in a shipping container uh, in, the, in the heat of the African sun. Uh, in that shipping container for the sake of Christ. We know that all over the world, people are suffering for Jesus. But those same people are also experiencing the reality of the power of the risen Christ at work within them. So this union with Christ, you know, um, John Calvin believed that this theme of union with Christ was the very heart of the gospel. And he might be right. I don't know. Who am I to question John Calvin, right? But the, the, the union with Christ is so vital a, a subject. And yet, you know, if you go to your average Christian uh, website or bookstore, you know, there's not many books on this very important subject. A lot of how-to books uh, on all kinds of lesser things. But, uh, but what is most important and most needful is often not what is written about and preached as it, as it should. So the, the, what the Westminster Divines are saying in this chapter is this, that all of us who are in Jesus Christ have this common union with Him. That what they also point out in the latter part of section 1 all the way through section 3 is that the reality of our union with Jesus Christ through faith in Him has consequence also for our union with each other. That is, just as we saw this morning, just as there is somewhat of a vertical aspect to the gospel, there is also this horizontal aspect uh, to the gospel. That we also are in union with each other. We have communion with each other. If you look at... um, Section 1, again, it says, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him in His graces, suffering, death, resurrection, and glory. That's all what I just preached on. (laughs) But notice the next part. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts, and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce (coughs) to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So that's just a, a way of saying more simply that because of our union with Jesus Christ, we also have union with each other and therefore we have obligations to each other and we have also blessings from each other. That is, the Holy Spirit has given you gifts that he has not given me. Uh, and he has given other people in the church here gifts that he hasn't given you or me. And we are to uh, exercise the gifts that the Spirit has given us. Then remember that the gifts are ours, not for ourselves. The gifts are ours for the building up of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you who have the gift of exhortation, keep exhorting. You have the gift of hospitality, keep showing hospitality. You who you know, have the gift of mercy, keep showing mercy. And, and you can go through, you can go to Corinthians and look at those sections in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, or Romans chapter 12 and following, and look, and you'll see a lot of passages that talk about the inner workings uh, of the church. Let's just go ahead and and maybe look at, uh, turn with me into Romans here and um, look at um, Romans 12. (coughs) Excuse me, Romans 12. And look at verse, uh, let's just start at verse 4. Romans 12, verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Okay, not everybody can be an eye. Not everybody can be a hand. Uh, We we have many different functions. Verse 5, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So we are supposed to be using our gifts. We are stewards of the gifts that God's given us. Sometimes if you're a faithful steward of the gifts God gives you, God gives you more gifts. And you need to develop those gifts. Like any gift, it's a gift, but it needs to be exercised. Okay? You can be good at music or you can be good at, let's say, athletics at a natural level, but those skills need to be honed. That's why you got to practice. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And and he goes on. And you can see similar uh, parallel passages in Corinthians as well that go into even a little bit more uh, detail. Now, the second paragraph of chapter 26 in the Westminster Standard says this, Saints by profession are bound to maintain and holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. So the first thing that we see here, um, in addition to the fact that we've been given gifts, and that's for the mutual good of the church, not just for ourselves. Notice what the first thing they said, and this really kind of conjoins with what we saw this morning. It means that you need to be in the worship of God. You you cannot be absenting yourself from the public services of worship. You need to be in the church uh, there, and you need to be worshiping. Remember what we saw in Hebrews this morning. When it, it, the book of Hebrews, boys and girls, said, you know, warned us, you know, don't don't be neglecting the gathering of the saints, as it is the custom of some. Now think about that. In the very first century of the church, You know, people always want to talk about, oh, the halcyon days of the church. That's what I want to get back to. I want to get back to the early days of the church. Listen, they had problems just like we have problems. There were people skipping church back then just like there are people skipping church today, okay? And the author of Hebrews is saying, some of you have gotten into the habit of skipping church. Shame on you. You ought to be in the body. You need to be exercising your gifts. You need to be stewardship. Now, there are times of necessity and mercy that take us away from the church. I understand. But unless you are providentially hindered, you're supposed to be among the people of God, especially on the Lord's Day. Um, I'm a little bit loath to press harder than the Lord's Day. Uh, I, can, I think it's a great idea if you come to the midweek prayer meeting. Um, but, you know, the Lord's Day is His day. And uh, so we need to be in His house, On the Lord's day, it's not the Lord's morning, it's the Lord's day. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. The seventh day is for the Lord. So they say here in the the second paragraph of chapter 26, um, we are to be in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things, showing mercy to those who have needs according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion as God offereth opportunity. That is, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Um, we cannot say uh, you know, to our brethren who are in desperate situations, you know, be warm and well-fed. Uh, Proverbs says... If you have the means, the ability to help today, you, can, you should not say to him, come back tomorrow and I'll help you. Um, Proverbs says that if, if it is a, a legitimate need, now I know, you know, Paul warns, you know, the church, don't be, you know, funding the slackers. If, if a man isn't willing to work, let him not eat, okay? Uh, exhort that man. Treat him as a brother, but, you know, exhort him. So we're not supposed to be you know, bearing the burden of people who are sinning against God and and against us by not working. But, but we're talking about, you know, providential necessities that are due either to calamity or persecution and oppression and such things like that. <clears throat> we are the, to be uh, using our means to help them. Um, however, the, the, the Westminster divines say that doesn't mean, however, that there's no such thing as private property. Okay, there are some who have gone to the other extreme and they they see that passage in the book of Acts where they were sharing all things in common uh, and they say that that is uh, not a a descriptive but prescriptive and, and that therefore there should be no private property. Now even Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as they're judging Ananias and Sapphira, said... While these things were yet unsold, were they not, what, yours? So there, there is private property. Uh, the communion that we have with one another uh, does not eradicate private property. Private property is um, inferred in the, in the commandment, thou shalt not steal. It's, it's inferred in the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Um, and, and so we, we don't obliterate it. So notice section three there. It says, this communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of Godhead. That is, we're not, we, we are not being absorbed into uh, the deity. Uh, that is not what is meant by communion with God. And we are not to be considered equal with Christ as the Son of God. But it says, nor doth their communion with one another as saints take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions here. So we do have obligations to one another, but uh, this ain't communism, okay?